Let's open our Bibles to John 3. Remembering why John wrote, These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the Son of God. John the Baptist was a great man. But John the Baptist wrote, verse 31, He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly, and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. John the Baptist compared himself to Jesus Christ and found himself wanting in comparison of the Lord of glory. If we were to look at Moses, and I've mentioned these examples already, David, Solomon, Paul, we would find the Lord Jesus Christ far superior to any of them. If we would take the names of any men in the history of this world, they all come far short of the Lord Jesus Christ. None of them came from above. None of them are above all. Only Christ, the Lord, Jesus of Nazareth, came from above and is above all. Some, more than a billion, follow what they call the greatest prophet, and that's Mohammed, who was an illiterate trader, and I don't mean a bond trader, I mean an illiterate trader who traded junk on camelback in the Middle East and worshipped the moon god of the Arabians. Right. He's of the earth and is earthly. Right. The best case was John the Baptist in this verse, in the middle part of the verse. But the Lord Jesus Christ superseded him. Amen. And the Lord Jesus Christ exceeded him. Amen. How much more other men in the Bible, how much more illiterate traitors that worship the moon. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of our religion. Amen. He's the cornerstone of our church. He's the chief cornerstone. He's the high priest and the apostle of our profession. He's the great shepherd. He's the good shepherd. He's everything to us. And we want to take these words of John, the Baptist, who is gently rebuking his disciples for making a comparison of popularity between Jesus and him, and see that he's preaching the gospel to us about the importance that Jesus Christ ought to have in our lives. Amen. How important is the Lord of glory to you? Anyone you've ever met is earthly. Right. Jesus came down from heaven and is above all, as that 31st verse taught us. Any response less than this is insufficient. It should be Saul of Tarsus' response when he met the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Right. Amen. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? We should all be saying that right now. What can I do for the Lord Jesus Christ? It doesn't have to be in an office of the ministry. There are things the Lord Jesus Christ laid out for every man, woman, and child to do in your daily lives. The rest of this day, the day that he gives us tomorrow, if he gives us tomorrow. Let's go to verse 32. John the Baptist <clears throat> is gently rebuking his disciples, is preaching the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is lifting up Christ higher than himself, and is giving various reasons 
why we ought to believe on him and to believe his teaching. When you look at verse 31, we ought to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is because he is the only one that came down from above. He's the only one that came from heaven. He's above all. We ought to believe on him. We ought to exalt him. We ought not to let there be any competitors to him because of that verse. We go to verse 32. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. What a disgrace and what a shame that Jesus who came down from above, Jesus who came from heaven, Jesus who is above all, hardly had any that believed on him. That is terrible. Let that not be true of anyone in this assembly. That it would be true of us that we did not fully believe on him and so order our lives to follow him because he is worthy of us following him. He is worthy of us believing on him and what he testified. He testified the will of God clearer, plainer, more powerfully than anyone else ever had or would. And yet it says, no man receiveth his testimony. Jesus, as the only begotten Son of God, had declared God in truth. John 1.18 puts it this way, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. How do we know about God? Jesus declared God by His life, His works, and His words. He testified of the God of glory. Jesus had the fullest authority, basis, and knowledge to declare absolute truth. He said in verse 11 of this chapter, We speak that we do know. The things that we speak, we know them thoroughly and testify that we have seen. I'm an eyewitness of the things that I declare by my ministry. And ye receive not our witness. So there's another statement. Though I have perfect understanding of what I have declared and taught, Unlike you and your seminary professors, no one receives it. God greatly conveyed truth to Jesus and great power for his miracles. Look at chapter 5 and verse 20. God sent the Lord Jesus Christ and prepared him for the ministry that he had on earth and the ministry that he has now. Verse 20, for the Father loveth the Son. We will encounter that in a couple of verses. For the Father loveth the Son and showeth him all things that himself doeth, and he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. The Lord Jesus Christ had conveyed to him the knowledge of God's will like no other, and then he conveyed that to us. And the apostles just came along and brought they had brought to their remembrance everything Jesus had ever taught. When you read John chapters 14, 15, and 16, and Jesus promises the gift of the Holy Spirit to bring to your memories everything that I've taught, those verses are not for you. Those verses are for the apostles. And Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, did exactly that. The apostles wrote down in the New Testament epistles exactly what Jesus had taught them that still applies to us. 
Because God sent the Holy Spirit to do exactly that, and he did it. And the apostles wrote down those wonderful things that, we, that were taught by Jesus Christ on earth. Look at John chapter 8 and verse 26. Jesus said, I have many things to say and to judge of you. But he that sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. They understood not that he spake to them of the Father. We understood exactly what he's speaking of, of the Father, and the Father committing to him truth of the will of God for our lives. Jesus taught it. In John 15 and verse 15, Jesus put it this way. John 15, 15. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. Everything God wants us to know comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that the Lord Jesus Christ taught in his life that was not recorded in the four Gospels was recorded later by the apostles through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Lawyers and court cases crave those with first-hand information about a matter. If you cannot believe an eyewitness or ear witness, what can you believe? Jesus had certain and infallible knowledge of divine truth by ear and eye. As he said, and what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth. The Lord Jesus Christ was in such a close relationship with God the Word, and he had the Holy Spirit without measure. He had all the truth and knowledge of God intended for us, and he taught it. And no man received it. John 1.11, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. John 3.11, ye receive not our witness. John 3.32, no man receiveth his testimony. Yet, we have John the Baptist's disciples saying in verse 26, all men come to him. Now, which is true? The disciples were envious of John the Baptist, and so they saw the growing numbers coming to Jesus Christ, and they used the hyperbole or exaggerated description that all men were going to Jesus to make the situation for John the Baptist look indeed dire and desperate. But it wasn't nearly so good. As John the Baptist tells us, no man receiveth his testimony. Is that to be taken absolutely, or is that another absolute term used in a relative way, telling us that there were relatively few that actually did believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, which would make it consistent with John 1.11. Now, I want you to notice something about the Word of God, and you need to keep it in mind when you read the Bible, or you're going to end up confused. John 1.11, He came unto his own, and his own received him not but as many as received him, is the next verse. So when it says he came unto his own, his own received him not, not very many received him. Right. But there were some, and those exceptional few were made so by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit in John 1, 12 and 13. Right. Watch this in verse 32. And no man receiveth his testimony. That's the last words of verse 32. But verse 33 he that hath received his testimony. Now, which is true? No man receiveth his testimony, 
or some receive his testimony. No man is an exaggeration, hyperbole, statement by John the Baptist to silence his disciples that were saying, all men are coming to Christ. Well, that wasn't true. Very few came to the Lord Jesus Christ. Some did. But the general statement is, no man receiveth his testimony. You know, where, where are the Arminians when we would like them to be reading the Bible with us? So that they could see some of these expressions where God uses absolute terms in very relative ways. No man, few men. Because the very next verse tells us, some did. And we just want to see that. We want to let context drive us. The reason there are these strong terms being used is because the disciples started it by saying all men are coming to Christ. And John said, compared to who he is, no one's believing on him. Everyone should have been flocking to the Lord Jesus Christ, but instead there were relatively few. The nation at large didn't believe. The nation at large crucified him through their representatives, through their leaders. This is verse 32. No man receiveth his testimony, since Jesus is Jehovah God and a human nature together. All men should hear all things coming from his mouth. It is a disgrace that it's not true. There's never been another religious leader, anything like Jesus Christ. He's our Lord. He's our master. He's our rabbi. He's our teacher. He's our apostle. He's our high priest. He's our bishop of our souls. No one's ever been like him. And very few believe on him. He only testified those things he had personally seen and heard in heaven. And hardly anyone believed him. John the Baptist's take on our Lord's ministry in popularity is decidedly negative and few in opposition to those disciples of his. Wise men know that Scripture is always interpreted by context and the knowledge. And we, the knowledge we have is that only a relatively few believe the gospel because that nation was under a curse given to us in Isaiah chapter 6 that God was going to blind their hearts and their eyes and close up their ears lest they should believe the gospel and be converted. He repeated that message over and over. It's one of the most commonly repeated prophecies of the Old Testament in the New. It's taught to us in Matthew 13 about why Jesus spoke in parables. The Apostle Paul used it in Acts chapter 28, telling the Jewish leadership in Rome that they better be careful lest fall upon them that prophecy that they would not believe on the very Messiah that came to his own nation. Verse 33. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. As we go through these verses, where John the Baptist is gently rebuking his disciples, preaching us the gospel, and lifting up the Lord Jesus Christ, he is pressing us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because that is the purpose of the book of John, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. When we look at verse 31, if the Lord Jesus Christ came down from heaven and is above all, we ought to believe on him. If, according to verse 32, Everything he had seen and heard, being an eyewitness and an earwitness, is what he taught. We ought to believe on him. And then we come to verse 33. If we don't believe on him, we make God a liar. Now this is pretty potent gospel preaching. 
as John the Baptist points out why they should believe, and so few did in the Jewish nation. By the time you get done here, the wrath of God being upon most of them is a perfectly fit situation, and they were ground to powder by 70 AD by the Roman armies destroying the city of Jerusalem and all that was in it and leveling it to the ground. If you don't believe what Jesus Christ taught, since he came from God, he came down from above, he came from heaven, what he taught he had seen, what he taught he had heard, then you make God a liar. Because God sent his son to declare what he had told and shown Jesus Christ to declare. Jesus, the son of God, testified truth about God, about himself, about man, and about eternal life. And if you don't believe every bit of it, then you're making God a liar. Some believed our Lord's testimony because this verse tells us, He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. The only ones that do believe are those that were ordained to eternal life, as Acts chapter 13 and verse 48 tells us. The only ones that believe on Jesus Christ according to John 10, are the sheep that God gave to Jesus Christ. Jesus said to the Jews that were confronting him and asking him for miracles to prove that he was the Son of God, he said, But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. In John 10, 27. The important question is whether you have received the testimony of Jesus. It doesn't matter that we give it lip service. Remember, we are going to discover in this book of John several situations where there were men that believed on Jesus, but Jesus did not commit himself to them, chapter 2. Jesus called them children of the devil, chapter 8. They try to make Jesus king, chapter 6, and he withdraws from them. We are going to run into it more times than that before we get through this gospel. Do you truly believe everything Jesus Christ taught? It'll change your life. The Sermon on the Mount should be a good starting place. Can you work your way through Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 and practice all of those? How cheerful was your, husband, was your pastor? How cheerful were you as a church with what I told you about our driveway? Yet... The Lord Jesus Christ declared the will of God in the matter. And he declared it plainly and powerfully. And I hope we embraced it as an opportunity to honor Christ. As one example, hath set to his seal that God is true. When we believe the witness of God about Jesus, we declare that God is true. God sent his son, the word made flesh, to preach truth to us. And when we believe it, we set to our seal we put a stamp upon ourselves that God is true. As for me and my house, we believe the Lord. We believe what God has said. Look at 1 John chapter 5 with me. 1 John 5. See, this same writer that God inspired wrote things about the witness that God gave of Jesus Christ. And when we receive the testimony of Jesus Christ, we set to our seal that God is true. 1 John 5 and verse 6. This is he that came by water and blood. Who came by water and blood? 
even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. And Jesus had the Spirit without measure. This verse is teaching that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God at the waters of baptism when God thundered from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God on the cross of Calvary when the sun was darkened for three hours, there was an earthquake, the veil in the temple was rent, and the centurion in charge of the murderous crime confessed, Truly, this man was the Son of God. In both places, he was shown to be the Son of God by a witness of water and a witness of blood, meaning his death, at the time of his death, and the Spirit bears witness as well in the hearts of men and through the Word of God. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. The Spirit of God has given us the Bible, which testifies of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God regenerates us and reveals Jesus Christ to us in our hearts. Ephesians 1, 17 and 18. Ephesians 3, 16 through 19. So it's the Spirit of God that testifies of Jesus Christ, and there is the testimony of water and the testimony of blood Because every time we have a baptism, it is a testimony of Jesus Christ. Every time we have the Lord's Supper, it is a testimony of Jesus Christ. So we have the Spirit of God and two ordinances of the church, church, two ordinances of Christ's kingdom that reveal to us and remind us of Jesus Christ. Now John is building a case. The purpose of John you know. I've already quoted the verse and it was the 13th verse of this context. John's building a case that Jesus came by water and blood. The waters of baptism revealed him to be the Son of God, and at his death, and by the work of the Spirit in his life. There are three that bear witness in heaven. Record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. There are three on earth to us now. The Spirit, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. Verse 8. Verse 9, if we receive the witness of men, and you know what? We receive the witness of men about all kinds of things. If I say to you, who came on the Santa Maria? What are you going to tell me? Leif Erikson or Columbus? We believe the witness of men. It's pitiful. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. There's three witnesses in heaven. There were three witnesses on earth in the life of Jesus Christ. And there are three witnesses on earth right now that have been here for 2,000 years. The Spirit of God's been here for 2,000 years. Poured out in the day of Pentecost. Given to everyone that believes and obeys the Son of God. And those two ordinances. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which He hath testified of His Son that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the Son of God. He that believeth on the Son of God hath a witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record, that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. 
He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. And here's that verse explaining how and why John wrote, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, which is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. God has given a multiplied witness of Jesus Christ, and you better believe it. You had better believe it. He that believeth not shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. That's how this chapter is going to end. If you don't want to believe the record that God's given of his son, God's wrath is abiding upon you and it will sink you down into the lowest hell. Let's believe the gospel. But it is not enough to give it lip service. Let's let it change our lives. Let's choose to change our lives for the God that sent his son and bore witness of him and that Jesus Christ only testified things that he had seen and things that he had heard of God. We are not dealing with an illiterate trader riding camels in the Middle East on a bunch of sand looking for palm trees and virgins and having sex with his nine-year-old wife. We're talking about the Lord of glory who spent 33 and a half years in this world without a wife and was received up into heaven and sits at God's right hand and is coming for us. There is nothing in this world to help you love Christ. There is nothing in your flesh to help you love Christ. The devil has no interest in helping you love Christ. It is only by the Spirit of God and by the Word of God and us humbling ourselves to Him that we will increase in our love of Christ. Right. Hath set to His seal that God is true. God is true. Amen. Jesus is His Son. And what Jesus testified, God gave Him. I believe it all. I believe every word of it. I love every word of it. You can do anything you want to me. But I believe it because the Bible tells me so. Amen. I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. There is no other Savior. There is no other man that has come down from heaven. He is the Son of God. He reigns now. He's returning soon. He's my Lord and Savior. Amen. He was given a nature like me. He suffered in all points like I suffer. He was tempted in all points like I am tempted, yet without sin. Amen. He laid down his life to pay for my sins. God poured out his wrath upon him, so there's no wrath abiding upon me. Above me is nothing but glory that is coming, because the wrath that should be resting upon me, because by nature I am a child of disobedience, Ephesians 2.2, 2, thus making me a child of wrath, Ephesians 2.3, by nature I'm a, a vessel of wrath, Romans 9.22, but by God's grace in Romans 9.23, he's made me a vessel of mercy. And Jesus Christ took the wrath of God in punishment on the cross of Calvary because it pleased the Lord to bruise him instead of bruising me. He deserves everything I can give him. Look at Titus chapter 1 with me to let me just share a little note from the Apostle Paul's pen about professing your love of Christ or living your love of Christ. Faith without action is vain. Faith without action is dead. 
Faith without action is vanity. It means nothing. The prophet Isaiah condemned the Israelites in Isaiah 29 for having the fear of God taught by the precepts of men. They went through the motions. They didn't truly fear God or love his son Jesus Christ as it came to be in the New Testament. Titus 1.16 They profess that they know God. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. Let that never be said of us, that we profess that we know God. We have a form of godliness, but we deny the power thereof. We're lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. We're inside the parentheses of Philippians 3, 18 and 19, rather than being on the outside where our conversation is in heaven. This is God's word. This is how it is written. This is how it should be preached. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him. Are your works consistent with your profession? Is your lifestyle in heaven? Is your life hid with Christ in God? Colossians 3, 1 through 4. This is what we want to take from John the Baptist. John the Baptist only had a few months. When John wrote down some things that John the Baptist had to say, this is what he said. If you don't believe the testimony of Jesus Christ, you make God a liar. If you believe it, you set to your seal that God is true. Let's do the latter and reject the former. But let's do it by a changed life rather than just a profession. It changed the life of John the Baptist. He spent his whole life in the wilderness preaching Christ when when it came time for him to preach. It changed the life of Saul of Tarsus. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Well, get up, Saul, and go on into town. I have a couple things for you to do. I have a couple errands for you to run over the next 30 years. I'm going to abuse you like you abused my people. I'm going to send you to the Gentiles, you Jew-loving, Gentile-hating man. And on and on it goes. Go read it. Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 26. The, the personal testimony of Saul of Tarsus. Right. He set to his seal that God is true. Verse 34. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. John the Baptist is repeating himself in different ways to communicate to us that the religion of Jesus Christ, the doctrine of the Lord Jesus, is from God. He whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. Where did he get the words? God gave them to him. How did he give them to him? Well, in one sense, Jesus was God, so it wasn't very hard. But this verse is going to tell us it's because Jesus had a ministry of the Holy Spirit without measure. There was no limit on the Holy Spirit's presence with Jesus Christ to communicate to Jesus the will of God in all respects that God chose to reveal to him. And that's what he spoke. He whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. 
for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. When we go into the Bible, and then we come to the New Testament, and we see Jesus Christ teaching and preaching, and we read the things that he taught, the things that he preached, they're from God. John the Baptist is elevating Jesus Christ as high as he can and leaving himself down here on earth as having this earthly ministry of repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus went way beyond that and took apart the Pharisees. He took apart the Sadducees. He took apart the scribes. He took apart the lawyers. You're saying, when did he take apart a lawyer? Who is my neighbor? Listen, brethren, what came out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ is precious, pure, unadulterated doctrine. And it's beautiful. And if you don't believe it, you make God a liar. And if you do believe it, you set to your seal that God is true. As for me, God is true. And I believe everything his son taught. You say, well, I wish he had taught more. There's enough in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in Paul's epistles for you to be busy at the rest of your life, and you'll never be able to keep it all. But by God's grace, we should be striving to do so. God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. Even for Jesus, the Son of God, his teaching content was by the Spirit of God. Can you tell from this verse? He whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is of such importance, not only to the Lord Jesus Christ, but to us, and so much more, because we are so inferior to him. When I preached a year and a half ago on higher ground, emphasizing the Holy Spirit and begging his influence in our church and in our lives, was one of those things that we wanted to do more of in the years to come. Even the Lord Jesus Christ, his teaching content was by the Spirit of God. Jesus had to grow in wisdom, and he did. Luke 2.52 tells us, Jesus didn't have all knowledge in his human nature. Mark 13.32 tells us, he did not know the day or the hour of the coming that is mentioned there in his human nature. He asked in Gethsemane for a possible alteration of the plan of redemption if he wouldn't have to drink that cup. But there was a measure of the Holy Spirit given to Jesus Christ that what we have in the Gospels is pure truth from the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God was committed. I've already said this. I'm saying it again. Because I want you to understand that John chapters 14 through 16 are not for you. John chapters 14 through 16 are Jesus speaking to his apostles in the last 24 hours before he died and promising them the comforter that would come and bring all things to their remembrance whatsoever I have taught you. You have never heard Jesus Christ teach a single word to you in person. They had heard him for three and a half years and their weak little memories could not keep track of everything that he had taught them. So the Holy Spirit would come and bring all those things to their remembrance. Then they would pull one of these out and put it down on paper and we have it in our epistles. And we have it by one who said he wasn't even worthy to be called an apostle. The Apostle Paul, by the Spirit of God. Do you know what it says in 1 Corinthians 2? Do you love that passage? When I say to you, 
about the blessing of the Spirit of God in revealing truth. Do you know where to go? Do you know that 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16 is fabulous? In 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16, it describes a couple of aspects of how we ever obtain truth. The truth of the universe, the most important things, everything that you can see is going to disappear because it is temporary. Everything that is important and is, of, and is lasting and is eternal, you can't see it. So how will you ever know about it? The Bible says, I hath not seen, nor, I'm talking about 1 Corinthians 2, I hath not seen, ear hath not heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. What things, know, what things does a man know but the spirit of man which is in him? How can we tell anything about ourselves except the spirit that is in us reflecting and analyzing all about our lives? There's a spirit of the living God that reflects on all of the existence of God, the purpose of God, the will of God, and communicates that as well. It's all in 1 Corinthians 2. God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man? Save the Spirit of man which is in him. Even so, the things of God knoweth no man, but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. How would we know? Listen, let's think for a minute. I can see that you're having trouble following me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Did you know that without John 14? You don't know a thing about what's coming next without John 14 except terror. I'll tell you one thing. The king of terrors has existed on this planet for 6,000 years. That's the book of Job's description of death. The king of terrors. And it will root every single one of you out of your house. You are going to give up your address and you're not going to take a penny for it. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you that there aren't mansions there. But in my father's house, there's many mansions. Jesus declared things to us by the Spirit of God that we would not otherwise know because we've never seen them, we've never heard them, and we can't even imagine a heavenly mansion. When I ask you to describe a mansion, you'll describe some little doghouse like the Biltmore house. You'll describe some little... Do you know what it costs to maintain that thing? Do you know how pitiful the electrical system in it is? How would you like to water the grass? I like air conditioning when it's 95 degrees out, and I like air conditioning better than wind blowing through one window and out another window. We have mansions coming. The heaven and the earth are going to be changed. How do we know these things? Because the Spirit of God declares them, and He declared them through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have statements like that. In my Father's house are many mansions. Give me liberty or give me death. And people will actually rah-rah with that. Jesus Christ gave us liberty through death. He's defeated death. He's overthrown death. He's abolished death. But we wouldn't know these things if it wasn't for the Spirit of God. Right. You know what 1 Corinthians 2 is beautiful? It's beautiful. 
you say, did you ever preach? <laughs> yes, I preached on it. It's called The Secrets of Hidden Wisdom. Go look it up and listen to them. It's a beautiful passage of Scripture. The Holy Spirit does two things. The Holy Spirit reveals to us the deep things of God, and the Holy Spirit regenerates us so that we can receive the revelation. If he didn't do both things, nothing would be accomplished. He does both things. He reveals through his apostles and through Jesus Christ things that we otherwise would not know, and he regenerates us in order to be able to receive it because right. until regeneration takes place, the revelation of the Spirit of God is foolishness to the natural man. Right. Then there's a third thing he does. He tells us to give up on using words the way men, uses word. men, men use words and use them the way the Holy Spirit uses words, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Right. So we have in 11 verses in 1 Corinthians 2, the revelation of the Holy Spirit, the regeneration of us to be able to receive the revelation, and then the method of Bible study to help us keep our minds on a spiritual track when we're reading the Word of God. And Jesus taught it to us all because God gave him the Spirit without measure in John 3 and verse 34. You know what it's called in Psalm 45, my favorite psalm, where it says about Jesus? It says that God gave him the oil of gladness above his fellows. No one else had the oil of gladness, which is an expression for the Holy Spirit, like God gave to Jesus. And Paul quotes that in Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus gives the measure of his gifts. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, but God did not give a measure of the Holy Spirit to Jesus Christ. Verse 35, the Father loveth the Son and hath given all things into his hand. Do you want a couple more reasons that you ought to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you want a couple more reasons why Jesus Christ is greater than John the Baptist? God loved his son Jesus Christ in a unique and special way because Jesus of Nazareth was a unique and special son of God. And God loved his son so much that he gave all things into his hand. And those all things in this place are not sparrows. The all things right here are the gift of eternal life and the withholding of the gift of eternal life. Because that's what the next verse is going to leave us with. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, but he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. Because everything was put into the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ in the way of authority and judgment over the human race. The Father loveth the Son and hath given all things into his hand. It's almost hard to comprehend. When we think of all things being in the hands of Jesus Christ or under the feet of Jesus Christ, we think, well, that would make him equal to God. Hold on. Do not make a mistake by being too hasty. We would think that makes him equal to God. No, it doesn't. It makes him subordinate to God, but over everything else. Because God accepted himself. That is spelled E-X-C-E-P-T-E-D. God accepted himself. That means he pulled himself out when he put all things under the feet of Jesus Christ, but he didn't pull anything else out. All the angels, all the principalities are under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's put all things into his hands. God's put all things under his feet. He's put all authority and judgment into the hands of Jesus Christ. We shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He, all authority has been given to him. 
He's the one that we shall stand before in the great day of judgment. He's the one that will open the book of life. He's the one that will open the book of works to condemn men who have no entrance, who have no name in the book of life. The Father loveth the Son and hath put all things in his hands. Look at chapter 5. Look at chapter 5. Verse 22. For the Father judgeth no man. That is a powerful statement. The Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. Why, Lord? Why have you given all judgment to your Son? Verse 23, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Verse 26, for as the Father hath life in himself so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. That is how high God has raised his Son, Jesus. There is nothing accepted that is not under his feet, that is not in his hands, that is not in his rule, except God himself. And that is taught in 1 Corinthians 15, 27 and 28, that God is not under the feet of Christ, but everything else is. And Jesus rules the universe. The Father loveth the Son, and hath put all things in his hand. If a father in time loves his son, do you know how much of the estate he gives him? All of it. He gives him everything. The Father loveth the Son. And hath given all things into his hand. How would you like to be a disciple of John the Baptist and having said, Hey, uh, Rabbi, you know the one that you bore witness to when we were over there on the other side of Jordan? The same's baptizing now and all men are coming to him. How would you like to have said that and then get this response? Is John the Baptist gently taking them apart or is he not so gently taking them apart? John the Baptist is elevating the Lord Jesus Christ in some of the most glorious statements summarized that are found in the Bible. I want you to love the last third of John 3. John the Baptist is elevating his Lord and Master for us. And he's just hitting us with these wonderful jewels of the identity of the nature and glory and truth of Jesus Christ. Verse 36, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. Do you need that verse explained to you or do you understand it by now? He that believeth, present tense, is in possession of eternal life because only those ordained to eternal life and given eternal life would ever believe on the Son of God. That is all the difference in the world. It's the regenerating difference in belief in the Son of God. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. You won't even get close to it without the Son of God. And if you don't want to believe in the Son of God, you're not going to get near eternal life, but the wrath of God abides on you. The wrath of God abideth on him. Do you understand that this epistle, this, this gospel, this gospel put together by the inspiration of God through John, uses the words of John the Baptist right here to press us to believe on his son, Jesus Christ. And that by believing on his son, we're in possession of eternal life. By believing on his son, there is no wrath upon us. 
but to believe on His Son even more so that we can have assurance of this fact. The wrath of God. Why do they get their way to John 3.16, but they don't get, make their way to John 3.36 and how this chapter ends? This chapter ends with the wrath of God abiding upon men. It wasn't taken off. It wasn't hurled away. It wasn't paid for. Except for those that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, showing the work of grace in their lives, which is the result of the decrees of grace before the world began. But the wrath of God abideth on him. Why do most men ignore the fact that the chapter ends with abiding wrath? The wrath of God is a subject most Christians hardly ever hear or consider. They have corrupted God's character by perverting and stressing John 3.16 without looking at that wrath. If that wrath was poured out upon the Lord Jesus Christ, then how can it still be abiding upon men? They teach that God poured out all his wrath on Christ on the cross. Then how is it still abiding upon some men? Because it was never lifted from them. They were vessels of wrath from the beginning. Because Romans 9.22 tells us, Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make some vessels unto honor and some unto dishonor, some vessels of mercy and some vessels of wrath, fit for the day of wrath and judgment of the righteous Lord Jesus Christ? There is no intellectual inability to believe. It is a matter of the heart and rebellion against God that will not believe His Son. Everyone that rejects the Son of God deserves eternal hell. And we would have rejected Him without the saving grace of God in our lives. Men do not want an angry God, so they have altered His nature to cotton candy. They know next to nothing of God's true character towards sin and sinners. They disdain Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Men want to deny, ignore, or minimize the wrath of God, but it is very real, and the Bible is filled with it. God is angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 11 and verse 7 tells us, God has fury toward the children of wrath and vessels of wrath. All sinners by disobedience deserve wrath. Look at Ephesians 5 and verse 6, or I'll read it to you. Ephesians 5 and verse 6, where six sins are listed. Fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talking, and jesting are the six sins listed. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. There are children left in their disobedience. And then there are children of God saved from their disobedience by the obedience of one who made them righteous. It's all by the grace of God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you're in possession of eternal life. If you don't believe, you'll never see life. But the wrath of God abides on you. And remember, brethren, I'm not talking about just making a profession of our lips. For they profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him. Let's show by our works and let's show by our lives that we are His and He is ours. The wrath of God is His anger and indignation against evil persons and things. Most think that God is like them. But Psalm 50 and verse 21 says, Get it straight before I come and tear you in pieces. 
I was silent for a while, so you thought that I was a God like you think. But I am not that way, is Psalm 50. God's wrath is because of his holiness and righteousness. He takes vengeance on his enemies. God is willing to show his wrath and to make his power known. That is how Romans 9.22 is worded. What if God, he's the potter, that's the context. What if God, willing to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? Examples of his wrath, the flood in Noah's day, the burning of Sodom and Gomorrah in the cities of the plain, the overthrow of Egypt, the earth swallowing Korah, the destruction of Israel in 70 AD. A day, another day of wrath is coming, the great day of the wrath of Almighty God, and Jesus Christ will tread the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. He that believeth on him hath everlasting life. That wrath will never touch you because it touched the Lord Jesus Christ instead. Right. Believe on him today. Let him change your life. Change your life for him. Let's make sure our church exalts the Lord Jesus Christ as high as we should. Let him have the preeminence here always. Let's increase him and decrease ourselves. Right. Let's be the best man and rejoice in Jesus Christ being lifted up. Let's have our joy fulfilled in his great joy. Let's have our fear provoked by the fact that he is able to cast both body and soul into hell. Yea, Jesus Christ said, fear him. The Thessalonians were a great church. The Apostle Paul had many good things to say about them. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, as he's giving a description of their conversion, he says that, you know, wherever we go, everybody's heard about you Thessalonians. They themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you. Everywhere we go, we hear how you heard our, how you Thessalonians heard our preaching and changed your lives. And how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Amen. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for delivering us from the wrath to come. There is a day of wrath coming. The Bible in metaphorical language in the book of Revelation says that kings and the mighty men of the earth will call upon the rocks to cover them, lest they be seen by the Lamb. Consider the wrath of one who is omnipotent, Psalm 2 says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Consider wrath by one omnipotent, by one omniscient, knows everything, by one that is pure holiness, by one in pure righteousness, and it'll cause you to tremble. But he has saved us by his grace. Yet, yet, if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the evidence 
that you have everlasting life. When you read the whole Bible, you find out that his anger at his children is short. You know, there's many verses in Psalms that I would love to share with you that his anger at his children is short. His anger at his children ends in comfort and mercy because he has adopted them and saved them with an everlasting salvation. And his anger is just a disappointed father chastening them back into the way of righteousness. And in the morning, it's all over. The spanking was last night. In the morning, it's all over, and we can rejoice again in God our Father and the close fellowship and relationship that we have with him. The wrath of God was already there. It's abiding on him. Because in John chapter 3 and verse 18, it says, He that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed the name of the only begotten Son of God. We're all condemned already. But those that believe show that God's made a difference in their lives and saved them by the Lord Jesus Christ. Coming judgment of sinners is far worse than being separated from God. I don't know why anybody calls hell separation from God. I like calling it the wrath of God abiding upon you forever. The wrath of God, not separation, wrath and torment and the smoke of that torment ascending up into heaven forever. Reconciliation is not offered, nor has it ever been lost, but it's only given to the elect. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, and hath given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, not imputing trespasses unto men, but reconciling them to God. And we get to say, be ye reconciled to God. God's reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. And we in our minds and our hearts should be reconciled to God through the finished work of his son. Kiss the son and make your calling and election sure. We ought to be giving all diligence to it. If you do these things, you shall never fall. There's no wrath coming, but there is something abundant coming. An abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It does say that. In 2 Peter 1, 10 and 11, If you do these things, ye shall never fall, but so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into that everlasting kingdom. Well, that's all John the Baptist had to say in answer to his disciples. Rabbi, it looks like Jesus of Nazareth is beating you at your own game. Hold on, guys. Let me tell you a few things about him. And we just heard those things. Jesus of Nazareth will now leave Judea when he hears that the Pharisees know that he's now baptizing more than John the Baptist, though it's his disciples, not him. And he's going to pass through Samaria and come to a city of Samaria called Sychar. And he's going to meet a woman in John 4. And oh, I think we can put ourselves in that woman's shoes pretty easily. And how the Lord Jesus Christ had great mercy upon her individually, one soul at a time, almost the whole chapter of John 4 about one woman that had had five husbands and was living with a sixth man who wasn't her husband, but Jesus had mercy on her. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's called us to live for him. If you love me, keep my commandments. 
Let's live for him this week. Amen. Amen.